Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host for this channel, Stephen Hausman. Today, I welcome to the podcast David Grua, a historian and documentary editor with the Joseph Smith Papers in the History Department of the Church of Latter-day Saints. We're here today to talk about his new book, Surviving Wounded Knee, the, the Lakotas and the Politics of Memory, which came out in 2016 from Oxford University Press and last year won the Western Historical Association's Robert M. Utley Prize. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background? What brought you into the field of history as a profession? Well, so I was I was raised by two school teachers, uh, and so I grew up in a house with lots of books all over the place. And I was taught from a young age that reading and learning was important. And so when I got to college, I uh, was drawn to history and started taking history courses. Initially, I wasn't sure if I could make a living as a historian, but as I interacted with more historians, I realized that there were opportunities both in and outside of the academy for people with PhDs in history. So that's what brought me into history. And how did you get interested in this project in particular? Well, it started as my dissertation at Texas Christian University. Uh, I was... I was introduced in graduate school to the field of memory studies or collective memory, which basically is the study of ways that groups remember and construct the past uh, to form their own unique identities as, as communities. Uh, and, you know, I, I was reading some really fascinating works on the Civil War and looking at ways that uh, people in the South and in the North argued and debated over the meaning of the Civil War, uh, and also ways that people were both included and excluded, uh, de- depending on how they how they remembered uh, Civil War and what caused it. So when I was looking around for a dissertation topic, I decided that I wanted to explore similar questions, but in an American West setting. Uh, and so I decided to pick a major event in Western American history. I, I ended up settling in on the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890. And as I started learning more about it and looking around for primary sources, I was struck by how active the Lakota survivors of the massacre were in trying to shape how how the broader society remembered Wounded Knee. Uh, and so that that really led into the dissertation writing and eventually uh, after I graduated in 2013 to a book contract with Oxford University Press and the book appeared in, in 2016. Well, let's get into the book a little bit. And why don't we begin with um, a little background on the relationship between the United States and the Lakotas throughout the early to mid 19th century. How did these two very powerful neighbors um, interact and see one another throughout this period? Yeah, so the Lakotas throughout the much of the 18th century and into the 19th century were seen as a major power 
in the American West. I open the book with Thomas Jefferson in 1803. Uh, as he's as he's instructing Lewis and Clark what they should do as they go west, he told them to be careful of the immense power that was on the northern Great Plains. Uh, and so the Lakotas, beginning with their interactions with the French, a little bit with the Spanish, they had acquired horses as well as guns. Uh, and that allowed them to control a great deal of territory. They were among the... Um, you know, what has become stereotypical buffalo hunters. And they were able to really control and dominate much of the northern Great Plains. Uh, so they were also seen as a threat. The United States acquired title, what could be called paper sovereignty, over much of the area that was the Louisiana pur Purchase. Uh, but they had to establish physical control over that area. And so they initially tried to work through treaties. Gradually, they were able to break down much of the Lakota dominance in the region. They, they whittled away at the Lakota land base. Uh, and they, by, the, by the 1880s, they had um, really confined Lakotas onto reservations. And that kind of sets the stage for for what happens in 1890, uh, that the Lakotas themselves were in a difficult position. Um, you know, the government was not fulfilling its treaty obligations. There were famines. Uh, and so it was kind of a desperate time for the Lakotas. And you described the immediate context of the Wounded Knee Massacre as a race war, which was a label that I found to be incredibly provocative. I'd never really heard it put in such stark terms before. Can you explain what you meant by that, and how does it explain the road to Wounded Knee? You know, starting with French and early explorers, um, British, English explorers that came in, they would frame their interactions with Native peoples in, in the Americas in terms of race, as well as in terms of civilization. Uh, and so they would, they would create kind of this binary that on the one side there were the representatives of civilization, on the other, there were the savages, and the savages were savages were, were people who were not trustworthy. They did not work hard. They didn't farm the land like Europeans did. Uh, they they were seen as being treacherous, so you couldn't trust them, uh, and they were seen as hostile. So there was this phrase: the war between civilization and savagery that really frames a lot of the ways that the United States dealt with Native peoples throughout the 19th century. Uh, and we, we really see that these assumptions really govern how, how whites interpret the actions of Native peoples. And so you see this all throughout the documents leading up to Wounded Knee, uh, where the whites are assuming really kind of the worst of, of what the, the Natives intended. Well, let's talk about the event itself before we get to the event's memory. Tell us, uh, to, the, to the best of your ability, what happened, or at least what probably happened on December 29th, 1890, and in the immediate aftermath of the massacre itself. Okay, well, we got we to gotta take a moment and discuss the ghost dance. Uh, that really is the context to understand the massacre that happened at Wounded Knee. 
so as I mentioned, the 1880s were an incredibly difficult decade for the Lakotas, as well as other Native peoples throughout the American West. Uh, and Native peoples, it's sometimes hard for, for white Americans to understand, but they, they, had a deep, they have a deep connection with the land, and they see a spiritual, spiritual root cause for the problems that they might have. And so they looked for spiritual and religious solutions to their problems. In the late 1880s, there was a man in, in uh, Nevada, a, a Paiute Indian, by the name of Wovoka, who began to announce visions and, and really kind of revelations that he had received that instructed him that Native peoples had to perform a dance, which came to be known as the, the ghost dance. And that by performing the ghost dance, they could heal kind of the, the problems that, that, were, that were really inflicting the people throughout the West. And the Lakota sent de delegations to meet with Wovoka and to learn the dance. And they brought Wovoka's teachings back to the Lakota reservations uh, in South Dakota and North Dakota. Well, the, the government, as I, you know, they, they interpreted all of these actions through this lens of race war. And they assumed that the ghost dance was a conspiracy, that this was a great uprising that was about to happen, that Sitting Bull was going to lead the charge, so to speak. And so they, they called out a massive military force to stop the dancers from dancing, the ghost dancers. And we have to kind of understand the geography. It's kind of hard to do without a map in front of us, but there's kind of a Lakota corridor that runs along the, the western edge of North and South Dakota. Uh, to the north, you have Sitting Bull's people that live um, on the Standing Rock Reservation. Kind of in the middle, you have Bigfoot's people that live on the Cheyenne River Reservation. And to the south, you have Pine Ridge. And in mid-December of 1890, Sitting Bull was assassinated when, when the Indian agent tried to arrest him. His people were frightened. And so they, they headed south. They were, they were all related to Bigfoot's people. They went down to meet up with Bigfoot. At the same time, you had leaders on the, Pian, on, the, sorry, on the Pine Ridge Reservation that had contacted Bigfoot. Bigfoot had a reputation for being a peacemaker, a negotiator. And they asked him to go to Pine Ridge to help negotiate a settlement with the Army. And so you have these two things combined, the assassination of, Big, of a, a sitting bull and then this invitation to go south. And Wounded Knee was the name of a valley, of, of kind of a, a creek on the Pine Ridge Reservation. So that's why you had Bigfoot's people, men, women, and children, all traveling down south to, to meet up and to uh, try to try to negotiate a a settlement with the army. So in late December of 1890, um, the army viewed Bigfoot's actions with a great deal of suspicion. And Major General Nelson A. Miles, who was the commander of all of the forces, he believed that Bigfoot was not going south to negotiate a peace, but was instead going to meet with a group of what he called hostiles. And this was a, a key word 
in the in the race war discourse that you had hostiles and you had friendlies. Miles believed that Bigfoot was a hostile, uh, and he he ordered the Seventh Cavalry, which was the same unit as George Armstrong Custer's men at the Little Bighorn, to go and intercept Bigfoot. And so the Seventh Cavalry, under the leadership of James W. Forsyth, his colonel, they intercepted and arrested Bigfoot and his people. And they they had orders that allowed them to use extreme force against Bigfoot if they saw any kind of treachery or anything that they believed was treachery. And so uh, Colonel Forsyth began to to disarm Bigfoot's people, the men. He separated the men from the women. And as they were doing so, there was a deaf Lakota who didn't understand why his, his gun was being taken from him. And in the process of wrestling the gun away from him, the gun went off. The soldiers believed that they were being fired upon, and so they opened fire on what by that time was, was a large group of unarmed men uh, and killed dozens of, of Lakota men. Uh, at that point, you had women and children scattering everywhere, uh, and there's there are accounts of the soldiers tracking down the Lakota women and children and, and killing them up to four or five miles away. And so this was kind of heralded at the time, by whites at least, as kind of the, the last major event of the race war, and the last event of the Indian Wars. And you divide the book into two broad sections, official memory and, uh, as you call it, Lakota counter-memory. Tell us first, if you will, about the official memory. How did the United States Army and white Americans first try to shape the narrative of Wounded Knee in the decades after the massacre? Well, so it happened right away. You had Colonel Forsyth, he had to write written reports to his superiors explaining what exactly had happened at Wounded Knee. And as I started to, to look closely at his initial reports, I noticed that he, at least initially, did not report any, any non-combatant casualties. So for him, in the way that he described what had happened, it was only soldiers fighting fanatical and dangerous ghost dancing men. Um, gradually, you had Lakota survivors as well as Indian scouts who started to tell a different story to the press and, and elsewhere. Uh, and so, ironically, it was Nelson A. Miles, the man who gave the order to destroy Bigfoot's band if, if they fought back, uh, that he called an immediate investigation. Um, Miles had a long history in the, in the U.S. Army, uh, but throughout his history, he had always tried to be fair and to, um, to negotiate with Native peoples rather than, than to conquer them. And so he saw what had happened, or at least what was reported to him as happening, of a massacre of women and children as, as an offense that was not worthy of men in the United States Army. So he called it an investigation that became a major event in defining how the government itself or the official record of the massacre was kept. So uh, they brought in officers from Forsyth's unit 
and they had them testify. So these men, there was kind of a code of conduct that you do not testify against your superiors. Uh, and so Forsyth's own officers were the primary witnesses, and they constructed an, an, a memory of wounded knee that placed all of the blame on the Lakotas themselves. And they even tried to explain the deaths of women and children as the Lakota men firing at the soldiers, missing the soldiers, and hitting their own families. And so this became the official record as these testimonies were recorded and kept in official archives. Based on that, you had uh, Forsyth was, was exonerated, uh, and he was determined, I believe, in the years after Wounded Knee to kind of protect his reputation. He felt like Miles had, had undermined, had criticized him. Uh, and so in the aftermath of Wounded Knee, you had... Forsyth recommending that 20 of his men receive U.S. Medals of Honor. Uh, now, the Medal of Honor was a, and still is, an honorarium that, uh, that started in the Civil War to award valor on the battlefield. Uh, and even in a period that, that saw the awarding of, of Medals of Honor in a way that would kind of astound us today. There were uh, some battles during the Civil War where something like 800 men were, were given the, the Medal of Honor. Um, even for a period such as that, uh, that saw kind of the liberal granting of, of the Medal of Honor, this was noteworthy. Um, giving 20, medal of, 20 medals of honor, especially in the wake of a controversial event, was seen as noteworthy. Um, Forsyth also built a monument the men who died. There were something like 37 of his men who died at Wounded Knee, and he, he had a monument erected uh, that celebrated their, their contribution to the race war. So all of these things combined to create an image in the American, in the American consciousness of a great battle that had, uh, that had won America, essentially, for the, for the good of civilization and that had defeated savagery. So then let's turn over and talk about Lakota counter-memory. What tools did Lakotas have at their disposal in the early 20th century to challenge this official memory of Wounded Knee? And then how did they employ these tools to push back against uh, the official U.S. Army narrative? Well, so the United States had kind of a, a claim system that that allowed people in the West, both whites and Indians, to file claims for compensation for losses. Um, this system was mostly used by whites who lived near reservations uh, to file for compensation and to, to say that Indians had attacked them and that they needed, they needed some kind of reparation. Um, Right in the aftermath of Wounded Knee, a Lakota delegation went to Washington, D.C., and Congress appropriated some money um, to compensate Lakotas, but they had to prove that they had been friendly Lakotas. So these were people who did not participate in the ghost dance, and people who were seen to have been hostiles during the conflict were automatically excluded. 
So that included the Lakotas and Bigfoot's band. They were seen as as hostiles during the conflict, and so they were not eligible for any kind of compensation. So the survivors of the band, you had a few younger ones who had gone to school, uh, the most prominent being Joseph Horncloud, who, who takes on a, a major major role in my book. Uh, Joseph Horncloud had learned to read and write, and he became aware pretty quickly about these claims and that he and his people were excluded from them because they had been classified as hostiles. And so throughout the, starting in the 1890s and continuing up through about 1920, Horncloud and his relatives sought to file compensations where they were, their main objective was to kind of turn the official narrative of Wounded Knee on its head. So rather than Bigfoot being a hostile chief, they portrayed him as a peaceful negotiating chief. Rather than the Lakotas being treacherous and trying to attack the soldiers, these claims portrayed the people of Bigfoot's band as being hunted down and killed. Um, and so, so the Lakotas used these, these claims, and this, this led to several investigations. Um, periodically, the Lakotas would go to Washington, and they would file new, new claims. In 1920, you had a large investigation where the, where the government sent out an agent who interviewed all of the remaining survivors. And this, this became just a fantastic resource for trying to reconstruct how the Lakotas were were interpreting Wounded Knee in these years after, after the massacre. Uh, the survivors also made use of, of monuments. Um, there's some evidence that the Lakotas had gone and visited other, other places in the West, and they had seen monuments that, that the Army had, had raised to commemorate, commemorate soldiers who had died. And so in 1903, the Lakotas, led by Joseph Horncloud, erected a monument at Wounded Knee where they were able to control at least how Wounded Knee was interpreted at the site. And so this was, this was really kind of, it, the monument is still there, and it's really, really interesting to look at because it's mostly in English. They list the names of the warriors who were killed there. Um, but there's also a portion of the, of the monument that's in Lakota. So we have an example of Lakotas using both English and their own language to inscribe the meaning of Wounded Knee at the site itself. That's one of the arguments that I make in the book, that because Wounded Knee happened on a reservation, the Lakotas had some power to interpret and define the memory of Wounded Knee, whereas other massacres such as Sand Creek, the Marias Massacre, it, these happened off reservations. and so native, the survivors themselves had very little ability to control how the massacre was interpreted at the site. The other, the other tool that the Lakotas had during this period that they could define their memory for the broader public was this was the era, era in which we had um, anthropologists, ethnographers, going to reservations and interviewing Native peoples. We also had 
kind of what we might call Indian Wars buffs, history buffs, who were just fascinated with what had happened to Custer. They wanted to figure out what happened to Custer at Little Bighorn. And so we have a kind of a wave or a series of waves of individuals coming to the reservations and interviewing the Lakotas and committing to paper uh, what the Lakotas were telling them, at least in translated form. And oftentimes Joseph Cornfloud served as the translator. And so these, these written accounts that were recorded by sympathetic whites uh, were at times published and circulated in the media. Um, but we also, we also have them because they, they ended up in the papers of these individuals and these collections were preserved in archives. So one, one thing that I argue in the book is that all of these efforts, they never, they never achieved or they never obtained compensation. But through the process of memorializing the event in these narratives and on the monuments and in the claims, they are creating a, almost an alternative record to the official record uh, that, that lays a foundation for, for uh, later later activists and later historians to reconstruct the Lakota view of wounded knee. Now I end the book by looking at the 1930s. This was a this was a decade of significant changes in in Indian affairs. So you had Franklin D. Roosevelt and his Office of Indian Affairs radically changing the relationship between the United States and Indian nations. Uh, and so I think this new feeling of optimism, of openness with the government, prompted the survivors to go again to, to the government. And in the late 1930s, survivors appeared before Congress and testified. And in, these, in the transcripts of these hearings, we, we get some fascinating insights into ways that the Lakotas themselves were viewing compensation. Uh, now, as I mentioned, it is true that treaties and treaties had provisions for compensation and the government had a claim system. The Lakotas themselves had a traditional way of understanding compensation as a means of conflict resolution. So when, when someone was killed in, in, a, in a Lakota village, the murderer could go to the family and, and offer compensation as a way of healing that breach, covering that ground. When, when Dewey Beard, who was the brother of, of Joseph Forncloud, appeared before Congress in 1937-1938, um, he described this process that the Lakotas wanted compensation so they could heal and they could forget what had happened at Wounded Knee. Uh, and, you know, so in these accounts, they're, they're describing their own perspectives on this whole process uh, that really opens up new windows for us to understand how uh, Native peoples themselves understood the Indian Wars. Why did the Lakotas fail to gain restitution and compensation from the U.S. government in the end? What happens at, at the conclusion of that whole process? So they're able to get a bill through or what we would say is out of committee. Uh, the Committee on Indian Affairs heard the testimony. They believed that the government had been in the wrong and they, they introduced a bill to, 
through Congress that would have provided compensation to the Lakotas. Uh, but ultimately, it was the onset of World War II that created a, an, an atmosphere in Congress that made it very difficult for congressmen to, to push through what would be seen as controversial bills. Uh, and there's also some evidence that there's racism, especially among some of the southern states that, did, that didn't have large Indian communities that, that really kind of killed any chance of this bill passing in 1940 when it came up. And so the Lakotas decided once it became apparent that the war was, uh, was coming on that they would pull back and let the, the war run its course before, before trying again. So what changes in the post-war era? How did uh, the memory of Wounded Knee change and how was the memory used throughout the rest of the 20th century? And then how is it also remembered today? Well, good question. So I, I had to make the decision in the book to, to end the main body of, of the narrative at 1940. Um, but in a conclusion, I kind of sketch out to some degree what happens later. Um, so the survivors and their descendants go back again to Congress in the 1970s, as well as at the centennial in 1990. During the intervening years, um, American society itself had changed considerably. Uh, Vietnam, I think, had caused many Americans to, to reconsider kind of the triumphant, heroic narrative of American history and to start to listen for the first time, in, at least in large numbers, to the voices of Native peoples and others who have been oppressed in American history. <clears throat> and so you get, excuse me, you get a highly influential book called Bury My Heart of Wounded Knee, written by Dee Brown in 1970. Uh, and Dee Brown really reconstructs the history of the, of the Indian Wars from the perspective of Natives themselves. And he has an entire, I mean, he takes his title of his book from Wounded Knee, uh, and his final chapter was based entirely on testimonies that the Lakota survivors had given uh, in the 1930s that were recorded. And so I, I kind of see this as kind of the mainstreaming of the Lakota survivors' memory of what had happened. Then, you know, as is known, in 1973, you had the occupation of Wounded Knee itself by the American Indian Movement that really brought to a broad American audience, um, you know, I say in the book that it, it made Wounded Knee a household name because almost every night during the siege where the American Indian Movement occupied the site in the village of Wounded Knee and the FBI laid siege to them. So every night on the nightly news, you had reports of what was happening next with, with the Wounded Knee occupation. Um, so this, I think, creates, creates a situation where the, the Lakota memory of Wounded Knee becomes not only mainstream in the United States, but ultimately international. And Wounded Knee becomes a symbol for resistance and for indigenous sovereignty in the wake of the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. The descendants tried to go back, to, well, they went back to Congress in 1990. They were given what could, 
could be considered an apology, but they they uh, carefully crafted the language of this document to express deep regret for what had happened at Wounded Knee a, a century earlier. Um, and the Lakotas also asked for compensation and for a national memorial at Wounded Knee. Um, ultimately, they were unsuccessful in, in either of those pursuits. Uh, but just, just recently, you know, 2015, there was a significant um, anniversary of Wounded Knee, the 125th anniversary. And, you, and I observed how Lakotas and Native peoples all over the world really looked to this moment in, in Indigenous history as a moment of not only the oppression of, of Native peoples by settler societies, but also a moment of rebirth and of, of resistance to oppression and to ultimately Indigenous sovereignty. Well, it's a fantastic story and very well told in this book as well. But um, now that this book is on the shelf and winning awards, what are you working on next? Do you have anything uh, that you've been working on since the book's release? Well, so when I was writing the dissertation, I wasn't sure exactly where I would end the book. And so I, I was compiling material on, to, on, you know, on the past 1940. And so I've been considering taking that, that material from 1940 through the present and turning that into a manuscript centered around kind of this question of, of tour, bringing in questions of tourism in the West. Um, there are interests in South Dakota that wanted, beginning in the 1930s, to make Wounded Knee a tourist attraction. You might call this massacre tourism. Uh, and these interests pretty quickly pulled the National Park Service into the debate. Um, and the National Park Service throughout the second half of the 20th century looked at Wounded Knee on several occasions, wanting to add it to the National Park system. Uh, but each time they did so, they would look at what the Army insisted had happened and could contrasted it with what the Lakota descendants by that time were saying. And every time the National Park Service pulled back and said, this is way too controversial, uh, this is not a place that we can easily find a common story. So I'm really interested in this question. This is a question that that public historians have to deal with. How do we find common stories that unite people from, from drastically different perspectives? Uh, and I think that the Wounded Knee story from 1940 through the present really illustrates that well. That sounds like a fantastic topic, and I look forward to reading it someday. Um, well, David, thank you for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate taking up some of your time today. It was good to be good to be with you, Steve, and thank you. David Grua is a historian and editor with the Joseph Smith Papers, and he is the author of Surviving Wounded Knee, The Lakotas and the Politics of Memory, which came out last year, excuse me, two years ago, 2016, with Oxford University Press. David, thanks again. Thank you, Steve.